Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today we're going to be talking just, I guess, for a second about um, some of the uh, outdoor hike stuff that's uh, kind of going on as we're coming in to late May and, and definitely as we're coming into the, the Memorial Day weekend. But I just finished up a hike in the Mackenzie River area, which is really cool. A beautiful spot. You go up Highway 126 outside of Eugene or um, probably down from, I don't know, any number of ways that you get down on the, the I-5. But a beautiful area to get up there. You know, it's probably one of the, the world-class hiking areas that you can get to in a pretty easy way. A lot of opportunities that are that are kind of offered there. There's uh, a lot of really nice open hikes that are there, you know, like uh, pretty wide natural trails that are near the road, but are also really um, separated from, from the road and from any kind of um, like highway action. Um, pretty significantly, so so it seems like you're really kind of removed from it in a in a pretty nice way, um, and then it's you know it's really beautiful right now as the snow melt has kind of um, dropped out of the mountains. You get this really uh, just crystal clear blue water that's uh, in the higher elevation areas as you move up uh, into the mountains in the Mackenzie River area. But it was really awesome to see and and a fantastic area to go to go hike and to go take some pictures and to go spend part of a day. But if you're in the area or if you have the opportunity. One of the places to get out there would be the Mackenzie River Trail area. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. I like the, uh, like I was saying, I like the October time period, you know, it's kind of a cool outdoor month for stuff. And that's kind of what I was going to talk about too, is uh, kind of layering up stuff for October. Um, I've been trying to kind of build up the the layers of clothes and the layers of like shelter stuff that I have for some of the outdoor travel stuff that I go out and do. And I do it on a budget and I don't really have much stuff. And like other people have a lot more experience of like just getting to try all these different pieces and, and see like the benefits or the uh, kind of weigh out the pluses and minuses of different pieces um and so i'm sure like it's probably the case that like the best gear is always the best gear but it's kind of interesting to sort of go through those checklists or you know like kind of in your mind like seeing like well like how's this work or what's better for me for this thing or or not and so um i've been pretty happy to always have or for the last couple of years to have like a gore-tex rain shell layer and for a lot of the outdoor stuff that i do in oregon uh, later into the year that's been like a real lifesaver for having just like a, a hard waterproof shell that I can like really trust that has like a good hood on it that can keep me dry for most of the day that along with um and I guess kind of like working inward like the puffy jacket makes a huge difference and uh so I use like a puffy jacket all the time there's a few different uh like sizes though and you sort of have to like look at the down fill layer to see what's going to be best for you and like the climate that you're going out to and it's kind of weird. It goes back and forth for me a little bit. So like out here in Oregon, uh, where I am, um, like west of the Cascades, it's sort of a mild climate area a lot of the year. And so I'm able to, I think you're kind of dealing with like uh, above freezing temperatures most hours and on most days through the year. I think like, you know, there's there's some some sections of the year where you get some some heavy freezes, but outside of those storm times, it's like, it's really like, pretty mild weather a lot of the time and if i'm going camping or doing something outdoors in the winter uh 
Oh, well, there's a couple different times I, I definitely use it. But really, for a lot of like the three-season work I do, I use a light puffy jacket. I have like this North Face thermo, thermo ball. I think it's like a, like a polyester-based one. It's not a down-filled puffy jacket. But I've used that for maybe six years now, and I really appreciate having that. I think it's been great. Um, and that's probably one of my most used uh, insulating layers when I'm going out. And, uh, and I mean, it works great. Really, all four seasons with uh, kind of paired in these mild weather circumstances like I am here in Oregon like that paired with uh, that shell has been enough for me to go out in, in almost every kind of weather circumstance that I've been in when I've gone out and I've been working or like when I was working outside a lot in the rain and uh, trying to be outside like most days through the fall and winter. It was really fine to do that uh, with a, a strong or like a good Gore-Tex shell that keeps you dry all the way and uh, a, a puffy uh thermo insulating layer that keeps you warm so it's pretty cool but kind of comparing that and i have like this patagonia jacket that i think has like a, a heavier down fill rating and that has a lot of insulation to it which is cool warm jackets are great and i definitely take that out kind of in deeper into the winter but what i noticed though is that for a lot of circumstances like i was saying three season work and while you're you're working or kind of like physically uh, kind of exerting yourself, I've, no, I've noticed like if it's not below freezing, that is too warm of a jacket to wear. And so you kind of get to pick a little bit of like where your your environmental thresholds are, like what kind of environment are you spending a lot of time in? Is it going to be above freezing temperatures or below freezing temperatures? Or is it going to be hot weather temperatures like where you're working, you know, your coldest temperatures might be 50, but you're really going up toward like the 80s and 90s pretty regularly. And that's kind of a different environment to work in too. Uh, so I've been kind of trying to keep an eye on that. But as we're kind of dropping into October, the outfitting stuff that I'm doing is sort of away from the heat gear stuff that I would have been using where I'm in uh, like lighter synthetic shorts and uh, trying to use like lighter layers and stuff. Uh, like in the winter, you kind of get to layer up and stuff, which is also kind of fun. Sweater weather, right? So uh, what I picked up last year, and I'm kind of... Um, excited to put some more use into it was uh, uh, a wool base layer. Um, so I got a wool t-shirt, which is great. And I kind of appreciate trying to cut out some of the cotton material that I'm using when I'm going out and doing some more outdoor stuff. And I guess it's because I, apparently back in the day, cotton was uh, a great revolution, right? You know, it was a, a more breathable fabric and it would dry faster than other fabrics that they had available to them, I guess is part of what was uh, cool about it. Uh, but as I sort of understand now, it's one of the more riskier types of fabric that you can wear as a base layer when you're out in the woods for a couple of days or when you're out camping or, um, you know, they, they're talking TV shows about when you're in a survival situation. Not really that. But yeah, when you're out camping or if you were going to go hunting or if you're going to go on a couple day photo trip in the woods and you're just going to be living out of your truck and stuff, it, it kind of is it ends up being a little difficult to use a lot of cotton pieces, especially if you're going to get wet. Or if it's cold and you don't want to get wet, but you do get wet, man, that's a bummer because the cotton stuff just kind of stays wet and it gets cold when it gets wet. And a couple of those things just sort of lead to it being a little bit frustrating. And I guess that's where some of the the survival complications have happened with people who are out in okay conditions. They get hit with a cold rain or a wet snow and they're in a like a an outer, you know, they're in insulating layers, but they're like a cotton uh, coating or like I guess like uh, like a tough warm insulated Carhartt jacket someone went hunting in that they got into some wet snow on the second morning the Carhartt wet pants got 
or the, the the pants that were insulated got wet from the tall grass and brush that they walked through and then the person became hypothermic because of their exposure to the cold that soaked through their pants that got them very cold and i think they had to like ditch the pants get into their sleeping bag that was synthetic and then they try to like warm them up with a hot water bottle in a sleeping bag or something like that out of the jet boil but really like it ended their trip i think they like you can't continue out of that sort of stuff so it's kind of interesting i like that kind of that kind of thing can go and i don't know people have probably heard anecdotes like that similarly in the past i heard like someone else talking about like a, a warm weather thing where i think they were going out on like a 42 day canoe trip can you imagine that like going through some big river system in labrador up in canada wow Fun times, popping out in the Hudson Bay or something. Who knows? Uh, but, um, but they would go up there and they would they would talk about like uh, all like the specific limitations on the type of fabrics that they would select to use. Because like if they got wet in the river, or I think it was like a cold weather, or who who knows what kind of weather you're going to get. Sort of circumstance where you go between hot and cold in Canada, kayaking or, or canoeing down 1,100 miles or something like that. Just big long trips like that, and they would kind of be really specific about. How like they 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 won't even have cotton boxers or cotton underwear because it'll it'll be the thing that ends up being a problem. Other people or another person, I think, kind of there's there's a lot of great ways to sort of work through this next problem. But I think someone argued that they did have cotton on them so that they could use it as a fire starter if they needed a fire starter. I suggest to just bring fire starter. Or some other some other material like that, I think it would probably get you by a little better than uh, your your cotton underwear. Um, best fire starter that I've used and heard about was well, I mean, yeah, like a stove or whatever. But if you're if you're trying to light a fire in the winter, like uh, having a, a plastic bag with Vaseline dipped cotton swabs was like a pretty inert material. To just like having a backpack doesn't smell like kerosene or something. Uh, and it has multiple uses. You can use it cosmetically for a number of things. Or goodness, if your lips chap, oh, I hate it when it gets dry and cold and you go, oh, man, my pores can't handle it. They were in a different environment, 5,000 feet of difference in elevation a day ago. Too much change and too much seasonal change. And yeah, you get like, I don't know, just rough spots or dry spots or something so you can use a vaseline you can use the cotton swabs for all sorts of different things but they're fantastic if you light that up it's a great little flame ball and you can use that with the stack of your other dry materials to get a fire going uh even in pretty wet conditions especially if you're kind of keeping your your fire starter material uh protected in uh, some little part of your backpack keeping it dry and stuff um, that works out pretty well and i think it works better than uh, like your underwear on a rafting trip uh, so, uh, but yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. People, people try to not use that. People try to like drop their leather belts. Like they won't take a leather belt out into the woods either. Uh, I like having like a sturdy belt and like, well, you see like people with, like big leather boots or whatever. It's not because it gets water waterlogged, but I guess cause it's maybe a weight thing. I think that's what the idea was for, for the, maybe they're like going backpacking and use like a piece of nylon webbing as a belt at that time. Um, or other stuff where like, uh, I don't know, just little tricks and things of like how you kind of hide certain materials and other materials and stuff. But uh, it's, I don't know, it's weird how it goes. Uh, so I guess, yeah, cotton stuff is sort of no-go. They talk about using wool a lot as sort of like a preferred 
material to make it out of or down i hear like down stuff is uh kind of a preferred material and then i also kind of hear similarly cited bad things about sort of the petroleum developed products that you get from polyesters or nylons or uh i guess like those polyester insulating foams that you get like those thermoball insulating foam bits that would be in the pouches of another polyester material that makes up like the puffy jacket that I wear for the Patagonia one. That's a down filled uh, puffy jacket. You have little goose feathers poking out, <laughs> poking out of it all the time too. Yeah. If you like, kind of, you feel around the right way, a little, a little goose feather will punch out the side and you pull it out. Hey, poof, little feather right there. A little, little down feather, uh, which is kind of trippy, but, uh, but those I guess are like a better, insulating system uh than like the synthetic kind of oil-based uh stuff and i guess the same goes for like sleeping bags too if you want to get into like a sleeping bag to keep you warm uh, there's some like the like the 15 degree bags that are well i don't know and it has a couple other features too where i guess it's like light and it scrunches down well and if you get it wet you can get it dry again well i guess it depends on like certain qualities of down sometimes that kind of get i think is a little tricky but the wool i guess you can get you can have get wet you'll stay warm and you can get it dry faster. And I think that's sort of the benefit of the wool on the animal that gets wet too. You know, like if you think of a sheep getting rained on all the time, I guess it's sort of part of the fibers that it uh, doesn't, doesn't attract a lot of odor because it has to be on an animal all the time. And I guess it does well to not have to like make you cold when it gets wet. I guess that's a big part of it. So a lot of the merino wool fabrics that have come out or the merino wool blends that are with uh, some little bit of spandex or some other kind of natural fiber product that they try and put in helps it kind of be a little bit more durable when they have those little blends. But mostly you want like a pretty strong merino wool fabric. And that's pretty cool if uh, if you're getting sort of like a base layer or something like that that's a little bit more tuned for the outdoors there's like wool sweaters or something that you can find but that's not quite it they're cool old wool, wool shirts you know like an old old pendleton shirt or an old philson shirt that's like a a loggers kind of wool button up that would go under like a like a canvas jacket that kind of thing's cool but that's sort of a different look and it's uh it used to be the the technical gear layering and probably still you'd see if you get like a i don't know like a uh a horse guide, like a guided trip with a horse or a mule or something like that. That's to pack in a bunch of stuff. They probably still use gear that's sort of similar to that without the uh, kind of like the, the technical synthetic gear that you try and find at like REI hiking places or something or, or wherever, whatever else similarly branded. Um, but, but yeah, it's cool. Uh, trying to do some wool Merino underlayers, trying to work with those puffy jackets when I can trying to work with, um, well, I have a, a soft shell that actually gets a lot less use than it used to. I used to try and use soft shells all the time, but but really I, I just kind of go with the wool, the wool base layer, the North Face kind of more, you know, like warmer temperature rated uh, puffy jacket. And then I have the Gore-Tex layer over that. Um, picked up a hat this year. Hats are pretty cool. Liking that. Boots. I had a couple of different sets of boots for the October stuff before it gets real heavy in the in the season, before it gets like real wet or rainy. And while I'm kind of doing some of this lighter outdoor stuff, I have um, uh, like a pair 
of heavy leather boots that are super cool for some of the deeper hiking stuff that you get into, especially after it's real wet and rainy and stuff, but really for a lot of the light season stuff and sort of summer, spring stuff. I have these uh, Nike SFB boots. It's like that military boot. I picked it up in brown or like a desert tan color. And then I also picked up a similar pair uh, that Under Armour makes. And so they're kind of like a lighter, more athletic shoe from the base, but they have like kind of a tall neck that goes up uh, to like your mid mid upper ankle there. And uh, so it's not like a real tall boot or like it's not like galoshes. They're not waterproof. They're kind of vented on the sides and uh, they dry out. They're kind of like a synthetic material that dries out pretty quick when you do get it wet. But uh, it also has like a good bit of tread and yeah, you can get them wet, get them dry, get them wet. I think they're kind of made for a, a, an okay dry environment. That's sort of where I use them most of the time is, uh, you know, hiking around for any of this uh, kind of lighter duty forest stuff is really nice because they're light boots. Like with those other heavy leather, leather ones, like just the soles of the boots seem like they're a pound each. You know, you kind of like feel it the first couple of days you're, you're getting back into the use of them during the season where you're like, man, my feet are like four pounds heavier. It seems like each you're just kind of like walking with a weight on it. So it's nice to have a, uh, one of the newer sort of higher tech boots they don't have the same kind of ankle support as like a thicker leather boot does or and they don't have the same kind of heel support i like to talk about like those you know thick uh like like a, a two inch heel or something that like one of those whites boots has or if you get like red wings they have like a real deep uh thick heel on it that you can use to kind of stomp in and cut in on uh some hiking stuff and uh for these yeah it's just kind of like a, a good a good sort of smooth walking boot and you get some ankle support from that, that tall neck, but it's sort of a fabric uh, so that it really seems like you're just, it's a light boot and it seems like you're ready to you know run and you can do like a, uh, an athletic maneuver in these pretty well. And it doesn't seem like the boot's going to be too heavy to slow you down. Not, not right for every circumstance. Like if I'm really going in a, a deeper area, uh, it's cool. Really. It's nice to have like the kind of protection of a steel toed leather boot um, but, uh, like the, the normal SFBs I think are not a steel toe. I think, I think these Under Armour ones though are, and I think there are steel toe versions that are out there. Um, but that does seem to, I've, I've kind of run into a few circumstances where, uh, for some of the, some of the more woodsy stuff, it really seems like having the steel toe has, uh, helped a lot, uh, to keep, uh, keep my feet protected and stuff. And, uh, if you're hiking a lot, you got to, you got to watch out for blisters and stuff too. One of the big things I've noticed out that is like really breaking in your shoes with three weeks or more, but three weeks of like pretty near full time use to to really start getting them broken in or to get kind of the the feel, the break, the crease, the the kind of the fabric kind of working together in the way that it's going to fit around your body and stuff. But yeah, it seems like it takes about three weeks to sort of get those uh, those shoes broken into a spot that uh, that ends up being comfortable for longer trips and longer wear. I had like a, a pair of chacos. Oh, man, those chacos, they were great. You know, you don't, you don't wear socks with them. You don't like buffer it with wool socks or something. But I remember, I think, working with those for like three weeks or so. At first, your feet, man, they will rub raw. <laughs> Yuck. Uh, but they, yeah, they don't, you'll get some hot spots with the webbing on those chacos. It's like this real kind of tough uh, webbing. But uh, after like three weeks or so, like after you kind of wear your foot into it so that it's kind of strong enough to deal with it. And you also start breaking in the rubber of the boot or the rubber of that, that foot or the shoe. It's your, it's your foot. But once you get that all kind of broken in, I was able to hike for miles and miles in those and really have no rub problems at all. I think I, I did, I think I did the whole, the whole hiking trip up to the summit of the paintbrush 
divide and the Cascade Canyon, you know, like that, that, the Tetons trip that I talk about sometimes, but yeah, I did that whole hiking trip of the Tetons in early or mid late September, probably right around now. Um, but I did that trip in the Tetons with just those, uh, those black Chacos that I had that had like kind of that boot tread bottom. And I did great through that whole trip. I did like a 42 mile trip, uh, down the lower rogue. That was like a hiking, a backpacking trip. So you have a back on, back, you pack on, you got these little river shoes on and you're hiking away on the trail. And yeah, a lot of the times if you're not really in shape for it, man, those will just rip your feet up pretty badly. And I've seen it really affect some people's trips before, you know, like where their shoes just like really start to bite in on them. And it happens really fast. As soon as you get like a hot spot or something, it can be just a quarter mile or another mile. And then like that, that problem has been exacerbated a lot. Um, so as soon as it like gets bad, boom, man, it's bad fat or it starts to degrade fast and then once it's gone it's it's gone and for a while you know so it's bad uh and it yeah can cause some some mobility problems when you're out there so i think kind of kind of dealing with some of that stuff or kind of breaking them in early and stuff is cool um which is what i've been trying to do with some of my shoes but yeah trying to get outfitted for the stuff in october it's been kind of fun uh trying to work out the uh the layers and stuff You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it if you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. We've made like a big switch over the summer. And like I've been talking about on the podcast um, over to like the Sony lineup, which has worked out, I think, pretty well for us. I think it's been cool, like using the Sony camera systems for uh, a couple months now. Yeah, I've really liked it. It's been cool having a completely different camera yeah. setup. Yeah, see, we were working with Nikon for the longest time. Like, it was probably about 10 years ago also that I bought my first Nikon camera. And uh, that was like a D40. Before that, I had used a couple others. But, uh, but yeah, that was like the first DSLR system that I got to get into digital photography. And that was about 10 years ago. And so I was with Nikon kind of building a system in Nikon for a really long time. You know, nearly that whole 10-year period. And it really didn't didn't blossom into a ton of stuff. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to sell all of this. I'm going to try and go with a different system for a little while. And I think the Sony stuff has paid off pretty well. There's definitely some stuff that fits what we do in photography really nicely. Absolutely. I think that, yeah, I think that the Sony cameras are really, really good for like outdoor landscape. Yeah. And all that adventure photography that people are so into, that yeah. we are so into. Yeah, I love doing the uh, the outdoor adventure tourism photography stuff and, and like the low light stuff. Yeah, really the, the low light, all of the nighttime photography options. Are, yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah, there's so many great options or just abilities that you can have with the, with high ISO sensors now. And like on the Sony line, there's just a lot you can do, really cool stuff that you can shoot. There's stuff you can never have done before, like... Um, like the whole like Chris Picard documentary or film that he put out about oh, uh, right. with the, yeah, the, photographing like surfers and the auroras. 
yeah. at night. Yeah, and you just could never have captured that before, but it's really one of the first times, and it's, it's right on the cusp of, of that point in history where we have sensors that are, that are capable of capturing that kind of low light stuff in real time, like yeah. capturing that many frames to, to get video at night like that, but also capture those real colors. So it's cool to get stuff that's kind of close to what the, the human eye can do. Yeah, it's really cool. It's it's really amazing shooting with it and seeing that really, yeah, like you just said, it's it's capturing really just what you are able to see yeah. with your eyes. Yeah, it's a really fun part about it. And then that's also what's so cool about being like our age and being photographers is we're going to get to kind of grow into some of this technology as it really starts to mature over the next like decade and two decades. It's really going to advance a lot where we get into uh, way more capable sensors. I mean, you know, now if we're just getting to this point where we think like, oh, wow, it's starting to look like what an eye can do. Like imagine 10 years now into the future where we get wide dynamic range photos or, you know, like things that have like, uh, like just way more capabilities or way more information than the files we get now. We get like 3D um, maps that are like 360 degree. You know, we're going to have like, we're going to be shooting holograms someday. Yeah, That'd no kidding. It'll be cool if it happens. I don't know. But it's fun that, yeah, working with the Sony stuff and uh, kind of transitioning into something that's a bit more of a modern camera system. For like a long time in the last couple of years, we were shooting with a, a Nikon D3 system, and which was great. And that was kind of the first, uh, the first time that we were working with full frame cameras. Um, right. Which was a big upgrade too. I mean, you know, so the film work that we did for a long time, yeah, working with full frame digital was, was a big upgrade. And then now working with, uh, with video, which is a silly thing to talk about. It sounds like 2009, but I'm really <laughs> excited. Yeah. Having, a, having a, a DSLR or now not a DSLR since it's not single lens reflex. These mirrorless ones are interchangeable lens cameras. Right. <laughs> I saw that it was written as that in some yeah. articles that I read. Yeah. And I was like, what? An interchangeable is that lens what camera. That? Yeah, I yeah, it's, so. it's kind of strange, but uh, but yeah, I've liked uh, I've liked shooting with it and, and kind of changing over to that. Yeah, it's really cool because it's kind of our camera setup before was like you said it was the the D three the Nikon D three yeah, um, but that doesn't do video. No video. Those are our full frame camera, and then the camera that we had for video stuff was my Nikon D seven thousand, which yeah. is not full frame. Yeah, the crop sensor. But it was yeah. cool, though, like working with it and trying to... It was to, great. I loved things. that yeah. camera. We did got a lot of it, really yeah. wonderful video with it. Yeah. But it's so cool having a full-frame camera that does really nice video, yeah. really amazing low-light video. Yeah, it, it really does a lot. You know, I know that the A7S is like the the model that, that's supposed to be like the hot one for video. Right, yeah. Um, I think it has like a... I think it has a different kind of sensor in it. It's like a way lower megapixel sensor. And I think it's supposed to be able to capture... Uh, some kind of higher quality file type. Like I think it's S-Log. So what I've heard before. It's, you know how we were shooting like the ABCHD right. or MP4s. I think there's this other one called S-Log. It's sort of like, it's closer to a raw file or it's supposed to be oh, like, okay. closer to like a, a higher end file that you would get out of a cinema camera sort of thing. You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Is I think a little close to what it is. But yeah, these, these cameras do like a great job at shooting video. It's been really cool to try and get used to that. And, uh, and man, like compared to what you could do years ago, it's, it's astounding what you can do. It's awesome. So it's been cool switching over. Uh, but see, the, the thing is, is like we have an A7R. I think this was modern technology in 2014, if that sounds right. Maybe it was 13. But I think, yeah, it was like 2014 yeah. that this one had popped out. And it's a fantastic camera. I really appreciate it. I mean, we were living here at that time. It doesn't seem like it's that far in the past. But there's been a lot of advancement even since then, and especially from Sony as an equipment manufacturer for cameras. 
and I think you were doing some research about that and you pulled up some, some great notes about um, like the A7R3 release that was just announced. Right. It's pretty cool. We had like the A9 announced, I think, earlier this year, which is also a really interesting camera option. Like it's the higher, the more fully professional version of a Sony interchangeable lens camera. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it's supposed to be. But uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the A7R uh, 3 now that uh, that could be pretty cool. I think there's a it's a new battery type. Did yeah. You know yeah. It's like uh, a higher capacity battery system now yeah which is great news because those batteries suck it's really, really that's yeah. what i don't like about this cameras yeah for for as much uh, as screen time as it, as it uses with the, the it fully makes active sense that screen. it would use so much battery yeah and for the types of files that it's writing to a to a disc mm. i mean if you if you ask like your laptop to transfer 40 gigabytes of, you know like when we shot one of those weddings and we burned through a battery it's like well we did write 32 gigabytes to a card pretty constantly yeah pretty constantly. yeah we wrote video like constantly so i guess it must take like some amount of electrons to to want to run that to charge it uh so it's amazing that it can do it but it's it's, it's really awesome and necessary that the a7r3 gets the upgrade of having a more stable battery system and that's really been one of the downsides of the sony system for a long time the other upgrade that they've been talking about was improved autofocus systems like it was a faster autofocus there right they really i don't know anything about it though but I've been upset with the uh, the autofocus system so far um, on on the A7R. I think a lot of people have complained about that. It's one of those weird things where I think it has like a, a gajillion autofocus points, but just they're not like fast. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's like it's just a it's like it has them, but they don't like operate. Yeah, they don't respond the way that they're supposed to all the time. It doesn't seem like it. I mean, I suppose it was supposed to be kind of a slower autofocusing camera. Uh, I don't really know what changes the the dynamics of what makes it like faster or slower, but man, yeah, it was definitely behind some of the competition on Canon or on Nikon of like just being in focus. Yeah, and, uh, and maybe that's an issue that we have with our camera. It could it could very well be more <laughs> more prevalent with you know this one. Uh, but I, but I noticed like with uh, with the A seven two that we had for a while, um, that that seemed to like pull focus a little faster. Yeah, it seemed to like work a little yeah. bit sharper. It seemed like the the second model, and I bet the A seven R two is probably yeah probably it, similarly a little bit quicker at it. I know that it was supposed to have a new autofocus system in it. It was like a five hundred point autofocus system that was supposed to be just kind of across, across everything. It was supposed to be a lot better. Is mm -hmm. I guess what I understand <laughs> about. I don't know what it was supposed to be really, but now this one's supposed to be better than that one. That's what I heard. I heard it was supposed to be pretty comparable to the A nine. I think. That's great. I mean, I, yeah. I hope I hope that it's, it's decent or acceptable. And it's really cool that it's coming out soon. I think we're, we're probably likely to hear an announcement of an A7 or, yeah, an A7S3, an A7S3 instead of an A7R3. <laughs> yeah, we're, I think we're going to see like an upgrade to that one also sometime in this next year. Um, and maybe an A7 III as that goes too, you know, with this upgraded battery oh, system. Sure, yeah. And, um, yeah, maybe an upgraded sensor or uh, or upgraded sensor options or something. But uh, but it seems like maybe they're on track to do something like that in the next year. I think they they kind of spaced their announcements out a little bit. Yeah, they're quick with it. Or they they have a lot of announcements, yeah. it seems like. Or just like through the last few years, it seems like so many things have been updated. Oh, totally. A lot of times. I totally agree. Like yeah. quicker than 
quicker than Canon comes out with things, quicker than Nikon comes out with it. It seems like it seems like it's going pretty fast, though. I do remember like 2000, mm-hmm. like 2001, two, three, four, and five. Man, it really exploded during that time. Like the like it was just boom, boom, boom. A camera like every six months or something. <laughs> it seemed like you know to get to get that many iterations out that mm-hmm. quickly. It was like because they were just populating the whole the whole market channel for right. the first time with digital cameras. So they just had they had to make the professional one, the intermediate one, the beginner one, all at the same time for the first right. time. And then again, like a year later. So they, it was just like, like every couple of weeks, it yeah, like there was a new camera system coming out. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I mean, if you imagine like how much, how much change there was between 2000 and 2007 or so, that was yeah. like, that was a huge growth, you know, and in camera stuff during that time. It was crazy how that was. And then now we're, like, we're kind of thinking like 2010 to 2017, let's say. Sony's definitely come a long way. I think in 2010, they were working on like the early NEX mirrorless systems, those cropped, oh, crop sensor yeah. systems. Yeah. And uh, and that was kind of the predecessor to the A6000, uh, A6500, you know, whatever they have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's out. But uh, but yeah, it was interesting how they've kind of progressed so much and then and then really built out um, the uh, the interlangeable or the, the mirrorless systems. Because for a long time, in the 2000s, they had sort of a mid-range Sony line that was built by Mamiya, I um, think. Or not Mamiya. Some other, some other camera mm. manufacturer, Minolta. Oh, Minolta. Okay. Minolta made Sony DSLRs, I think, in the 2000s. The other A series, like the one yeah. that, that we gave our friends, like that was, I think, a camera that was sort of constructed by Minolta as a manufacturer, but it was sold as a Sony system and sold with Sony branded glass. I don't know. Sony was looking for a camera system, but I think that these are these are now like more in-house Sony systems and they're much, much better. You know, like that's why uh, like Sony DSLRs was never really something you heard of back about 10 years ago. Right. And then now, like the next point that you'd brought up is that Sony is overtaken nikon as the second company in the u.s for uh, for full frame interchangeable lens camera sales yeah really interesting i i heard another thing there's a photo i don't know some photo convention over in new york and there was uh there's like you know two big booths it was it was traditionally canon in a big booth and then nikon in a big booth this year not nikon it's sony in that oh, spot. Man. yeah yeah, Sony's taken wow. over in that spot. Sony's announcing the A7R3. I think Nikon had just had an announcement. You know, they're at the they're at the place, but they're at a different booth or they're somewhere else or something. And so it's interesting to kind of see that that changeover from so many people sort of moving away from Nikon stuff and moving into some of this interesting Sony equipment that's been coming up. It's really interesting. I mean, we really noticed it, I think, too, just when we were selling off our Nikon stuff oh, and yeah. getting new Sony stuff, we saw a lot of a lot of other people seemed to be doing the same thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. It definitely seemed like that. And when I cruised through KEH, it really seems like Sony cameras, camera bodies are really hard to be found. You yeah. Know, they're, they're pretty, pretty hard to come by. So there's definitely Everyone's a demand right for now. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's interesting to see kind of how that, that, that shift is happening or how it's occurring. It's really interesting. I see a lot of people using, um, the, um, like the A6000 yeah. also, or like the, the not quite professional level yeah. ones. I see a lot of people using just Sony cameras. I think that was one of the a lot highest of selling of cameras of the year that it was produced. The A6000. Yeah. I think that's one of the highest. Oh yeah. I'd believe it. That's a really good camera yeah. for, for as cheap as it is. 
Yeah. That's a great camera. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is one of the one of the best cameras that you can get started with, I think. Yeah. And and with a lot of the things that it does and for how simply it really gets it done. I've been way oh, impressed. Yeah, I've been working so with it. So easy to use. Yeah. I've been working with an A six thousand for a few months now, just as a production camera for work. And right. it works great. It's just the base kit. It's really simple. It was way cheaper than like the fifteen hundred dollar seven D Mark II system that we were working with. And that was just body only. This was like, you know, lens and flash and we were half the price or something. So uh, for, for a production system like this, yeah, it just, it just fit in just perfectly. It was fine. It was both crop sensor, you know, nothing different about it. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of see, uh, see some of the interesting stuff that Sony's doing. But what, well, I don't know what I thought was cool about some of the Sony transition stuff. Ooh, our heaters are coming on. I hear that. At least they're coming on the this time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun old house with a, a boiler in the basement. And then as the heaters come on, it sounds like people are sledgehammering the pipes and the walls. Maybe they'll, come, maybe they'll pop <laughs> the sound filter or the, <laughs> the noise gate that we've got. But uh, yeah, with some of the Sony stuff, it's been cool transitioning and kind of being part of the, the wave of, of stuff that we're learning about and being able to kind of uh, dip into some of the low light stuff that we can do, some of the video stuff that we can do. Oh, I've liked it so much. No, it's been, it's been really useful. I've learned a lot. Uh, just by doing that, and, you know, like before that, we were really invested in film equipment, and uh, and that was a really cool workflow. Like for the last couple of years, we've been doing thirty five millimeter uh, film processing stuff, or you know, we'd have yeah. a process and then do uh, digital adjustments to it, and then uh, and then like I'd uh, scan it and show it and stuff, and and that's been great. I really dug the style that we got out of that, and I want to dip back into that a little bit with like the N eighty, yeah, but for like professional uh like commercial activity and work and stuff i think it's great like moving into the sony stuff and i really want to invest in some glass with you oh man me too yeah we got to do more glass yeah we need a few more lenses thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the billy newman photo podcast i hope you guys check out some stuff on billy newman photo.com a few new things up there some stuff on the homepage. some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.